2 Samuel. Now, Heavenly Father, we do want to acknowledge that without your help, we cannot make sense of these truths, but the Holy Spirit is here in our hearts to translate these truths and help our spirit to connect with the Spirit of God, to hear his voice and to be blessed, to have life and uh, joy and peace. You mean all good things toward us, Lord. You have kind intentions. Help us to, to hear what you're saying and to put these truths into practice and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I have said, we are picking up now the same storyline, but in a new Old Testament book, Second Samuel. You'll find kind of a seamless flow, and there's a good reason for that. Because originally, it was one book. I don't know if you knew that or not. It would have been 55 chapters had the translators uh, not divided Samuel into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Now, in the uh, Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, of course. And around 200 years before Jesus, Israel was under Greek rule. So most in Israel spoke Greek. And at that time, the Old Testament in the Hebrew was translated into Greek, and that translation is called the Septuagint. It's just a fancy word from the Latin that means 70, because there were 70 scholars who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek. And so the Israelites had an Old Testament written in Greek so that they could understand it. And they must have done a very good job the Holy Spirit was involved in that translation because the New Testament writers quote from the Septuagint translation of the scriptures as well. And so uh, I throw that in for free. It's a total freebie. Uh, but it is at that time that the, uh, they divided 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and it's been that way ever since. Now, it makes good sense because... 1 Samuel covered a span of 100 years from the transition of the judges ruling Israel to the first monarchy, and that was, of course, the disastrous reign of King Saul, as we saw the People's Choice Award went to King Saul. And uh, 1 Samuel really recounted the struggle between the illegitimate King Saul. I mean, the Lord picked him at first, and then he just threw the whole thing away and became illegitimate. The Lord was busy trying to oust him all through uh, 1 Samuel and uh, really uh, to install God's own pick, uh, King-elect, David by establishing him. And so it might have seemed like this could have gone on forever. You know, uh, David was tried to pers was persuaded, uh, attempted anyway, to, to do away with Saul when he had the opportunity. Uh, but he said, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him down. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. That was back in chapter 26 and verse 10. And that's exactly what happened, as we saw in chapter 31. After 10 long years of running from this madman, uh, the Lord arranged the circumstances and he saw perished on the battlefield. And so we saw that happen. And now uh, the translators say, perfect. Saul's uh, off of the scene, and so now we're going to see the life and reign of King David. So we'll call this 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel divides quite nicely the first 10 chapters, David's triumphs, and then from chapter 11 to 20, David's troubles. And then their last four chapters are just kind of a collection of stories and incidents from David's life, not in any particular chronological order. And so that's where we're headed, all right? So at the close of chapter 31, it's as if we're just going into chapter 32, but it is 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let me bring you up to speed. I've met somebody who's it's their very first time at our church tonight, so just for her sake alone, uh, we'll just remind us where we're at. Uh, last we heard, of, it was the tragic, sad, pathetic ending of King Saul and his three out of four sons. Uh, the three sons died with him, the three oldest boys. 
But number four, who we will meet in 2 Samuel chapter 2, was away from the battlefield and survived. Now the Philistines prevailed in this battle where they killed Saul and the three sons of Saul, uh, just as Samuel had predicted. And we remember that uh, uh, Saul was disobedient and crazy up until the last second, really, and uh, goes to a seance to try to figure out the will of the Lord. And God plays his game with him and lets Samuel kind of manifest and tell him, you know, tomorrow you and I will have something in common. You'll be dead like me, you know, kind of sounded like a movie, <laughs> dead like me. Well, whatever. And so critically wounded with the Philistine arrows, he asks his armor bearer, uh, just kill me, put me out of my misery before the Philistines come and torture me. And the armor bearer said, no can do. And uh, so he falls on his sword on his own. So Israel's running for their lives. Here's your context. Israel is losing. There are Israelites scattered and strewn all over the place. Uh, Saul and the three boys are dead. Uh, David and his men are in Philistine territory where David's been living for 16 months, kind of in a backslidden state. Uh, but he's a changed man now. He's encouraged himself in the Lord. The Lord is answering him. He's back on track, but he's still in Philistine territory. He's in a place called Ziklag. He's 100 miles from Israel, and he's with his 600 men, and they're wondering. He knows there's a battle because he tried to get in it on the other side, unfortunately, and the Lord's grace prevented that from happening. And so now he's in Ziklag wondering because he knows the Philistines have gone after the Israelites, but he doesn't know what's happening tonight. He's going to find out. And so with that, uh, here comes the news and the answer, but with a strange twist. Second Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. So after the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. So he's come back, remember that uh, his, wi his wives and kids and all of the wives and kids were kidnapped and all of their possessions were taken by the Amalekites. But the Lord was gracious to David, and David and his men went, went off, found them, and recovered everything. And now they're back in the charred remains of a city that the Amalekites had torched. So he's probably just waiting. You know, what's going to go on with the battle? I wonder. Uh, we can't live here. The charred remains are probably time for me to go back to Israel instead of hanging out with the bad guys. And so... He's been two days back with the wives and the kids and the stuff. Got it? Verse 2. <laughs> On the third day, so the next day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band upon his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien and a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, 
Why were you then not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. All right, let's pause there. Um, you know, somebody said to me about Sunday's message, I was complaining about something, oh, I didn't say this right or whatever, and they said, oh, it was so refreshing to talk about love, you know, because in Revelation, it's the end of the world every week, and, and in First Samuel, everybody's falling by the sword, and, and then you got up and you said, First Corinthians 13, and my heart just went, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> well... So much for that. Sunday's gone, and here we are, back to falling on our swords. All right, so uh, news from the battlefield, if you're taking notes, number one. Now, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time, this poor kid here. Actually, it'll be a lesson in greed and selfish ambition. Uh, So let's recall, I just... I kind of did that for you. David's just returned from rescuing his wives and his children and the possessions. Everybody's all happy. Uh, The Amalekites had raided them, and now uh, they're just hanging out, waiting to find out what's going on. And thanks to David's change of heart, everything was restored. And what a great lesson last time. Just remembering, listen, when you get wiped out, No matter who's to blame about the wiping out, when we get our hearts right with God, he's able to restore everything. And and so here in the opening verses, here comes the news. David and his men are wondering. The Philistines went out after Israel. What's happening? And here comes this guy, a dirty-faced, ragged, way out of breath, Amalekite, way out of breath. You want to know? Three-day journey, 100 miles, 80 to 100 miles from the battlefield, here comes this young man sprawling into camp with what he thinks is really great news and what he thinks is going to bring him a big reward. And so uh, we have, we've got a problem. We've got a contradiction. So if you've been paying attention, you're like, what? Now, wait a second. Uh, that's not how I read chapter 31. Saul's already dead. And that, yeah, what happened there? You want to know? All right, I'll tell you. So now, um, in chapter 31, for all intents and purposes, uh, Saul has died. And it says that. But apparently, uh, he wasn't dead dead. He was mostly dead. Now, you know that old joke from Princess Bride. But uh, apparently, this is one of the options we have. We have a couple options we're going to talk about that. His armor bearer thought he was dead. And, and, and he... Uh, you know, he laid there, he was critically wounded, but um, and falling on a sword, it, it certainly looked like he had died. Now, here are the possibilities. Perhaps that Malachite is lying and making up a story. You know, um, it's possible. You can believe that. I, I happen to believe that that's exactly what happened, the way the Amalekite is telling the story. And, and I have reasons why, and I'll tell you that. Now, how sad... If you believe that he's just lying, uh, like many commentators do think, uh, they're divided in half. But how sad to make up a story to make yourself look really good only to find out it's going to make yourself really dead. And, uh, you know, but you don't you don't hear him saying like, uh, excuse me, I just made the whole thing up. I was just interested in a reward. Uh, JK, JK, you know, just kidding. Yeah, you don't. You don't see that. That's one, that's one reason. That's one reason. Now, here are, here are some of the reasons uh, many scholars believe uh, that he's telling the truth. He knows the whole story. He's got the story exactly right. He's got Saul's words exactly right. He's got the whole thing. Three, he's got proof. He's got the little crown and he's got the gold arm royal band that goes on his arm. He's got evidence. He's got the story right. He's got quotes. So it appears that 
And the, the, the big thing for me is theologically, it makes a beautiful point. And I can, I can see the poetic justice in it. And I'll uh, see if you agree with me at the end when I bring that point up. Now, the Malachites, just so you know his background, um, they are the poster children for evil in the Old Testament. They are not redeemable. For some reason, they just uh, stand for evil. They really made their living as vultures. Uh, they kind of swooped in on the slain in battle and scavenged and, and rummaged through the dead bodies, and they would take whatever they wanted. It was sort of like winning the lottery. They didn't even have to work or fight in the battle. They just waited for everyone to fall in battle, and then they'd swoop in even before the victory side was back around to pick up the plunder. They would just be like little hyenas waiting to, to want it. And so, so what, excuse me, but I was asking this question in verse 6. I just happened to be out for an evening stroll in the middle of a fierce battle ground. Yeah, you know, it's a beautiful evening. I took little uh, dog, my little lap dog for a walk at, right in the middle of the Philistines and the Israelites killing each other. You know, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Yeah, of course you were. I don't buy that for a second. He was there looking for stuff to stuff his pockets full, and that's what they were known for doing. Long story short, here's my take on it. It would appear that uh, I call him Ahmed, okay? Ahmed the Amalekite. I've named him. It helps me keep everybody straight. So Ahmed, it appears that Ahmed is darting all between the slain bodies, and he comes upon Saul, and he says, man, I have struck it rich. And Saul is still alive. Now, he's fallen on his sword for sure, but he's botched that. And uh, did you know that 75% of suicide attempts are unsuccessful? And so maybe this is going on. He says, uh, let's try this again. Uh, who are you, an Amalekite? Great, you're not a Philistine. Could you please put me out of my misery before they come? I hear the hooves of the horses, of the chariots, of the Philistines. They're going to torture me, man. Come on, just put me out of my misery. So Achmed says to David in verse 10, I knew he couldn't survive, so I killed him, and, and I brought to you, my lord, uh, his crown and royal armband and then little dollar signs a shekel signs excuse me uh come up in his eyes and he's longing to hear the cha-ching right but instead he hears the ripping of the warrior's clothing which is not a very good sign there in verse 11 now what went wrong if this was the scenario uh, you know what evil people just assume Everyone thinks like they do. It's a big mistake. If I'm a jealous person, then I assume he's jealous. Uh, if I like to gossip and talk smack about other people, I assume that others are gossiping about me and others want to hear bad news. Uh, if I am uh, somebody who would be unfaithful, then I assume my spouse or my friend uh, would be just like me because I would, so I guess you would be. As well, And if I think more of myself than I should, then I will accuse you in my heart of being stuck up because I know how stuck up I secretly am. And so Ahmed's thinking, okay, listen, Saul's your enemy. Uh, he's been hunting you down. You should hate him. You want him dead like I would. After all, uh, you're dying to be king and in control of everybody and wealthy and rich and famous like I would be. And so here's your crown. Here's what you've been after. Your dreams come true. It's all over. And, and by the way, did I mention uh, my bank account number? You know, he, he didn't do that. So David, here's the problem. David's not like Ahmed. He's like the Lord because he's got the Holy Spirit in him. He thinks differently than the Ahmeds of the world. He is growing in godliness. David knows the truth of what his son 
will write when he is born and grown. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath from him, Proverbs 24. And then again in Proverbs 25, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. The Lord will reward you. David already gets some of this. You know what David would have done, Ahmed? Listen, I'll tell you what he would have done if he were you. He would have fought off the Philistines with his bare hands to protect the dead body of Jonathan and Saul as well. That's what he would have done. Uh, David's not like you. You've assumed wrong, and now you're going to pay for your evil assumptions. David is so terribly grieved that this sin-stained, greedy, deceitful, pickpocket Amalekite had the joy of running King Saul, king of Israel, through and through. So Ahmed's in trouble. Um, he, he sees the guys, the warriors, tearing their clothes there in verse 11 and weeping and fasting. And you know what he said. He said to himself, uh-oh, you know, this isn't going as I pictured. And so for me, God has given this Amalekite an afternoon to think and to get right with God because he knows what's coming. He's in trouble. You see, he didn't bring good news. So God is always merciful because he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. And so he gives him time. He gives him an afternoon to observe what's building toward him. So the moment of truth comes in verse 13, David and his men have spent the day mourning and all that that involves. And David calls for the Amalekite young man. And he says in verse 13, something very intriguing to me. Where are you from? Oh, he already knows. What's he asking here? He's saying, tell me more about where you're from. Uh, interestingly, he says, um, I'm from Israel because he's saying my father is a, a resident alien. So David was asking, is this a sin of ignorance or is this a sin against knowledge? I'm just curious. So are you an Amalekite Amalekite or are you one of us who was born and raised in Israel, the son of an alien resident? And he says, I'm the son of an alien resident. Then he says, then you should have known the respect, the fear of God. Uh, all of this is going way deeper than his little charade here. You should have known better and understood the authority, the spiritual authority that we hold when God has put somebody in leadership. So the armor bearer knew it was a no-no. Back in the day, you know, before the armor bearer knew, no way, I can't kill you, you're the Lord's anointed. And so did the Amalekite. Now we know. Uh, to sin against knowledge is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, even Jesus said, uh, a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong, will be punished only lightly. They're still, they're still accountable. But it's not like they, they knew what was going on and they did it anyway. That's a dangerous thing to do, to sin in knowledge. I told one of my, uh, when I taught at a secular college, in an English class, I was witnessing to them and I told them. And somebody asked the question, what about somebody who doesn't know? And I'm telling them the responsibility of knowing and the whole class, once I said, I said, once you know, you know, God is holding you accountable. And the whole class well, picked up the, and put their, their hands in their ears as I was talking. And, you know, I said, yeah, uh, that's not going to work because God's smart. God, <laughs> he's smarter than you. Yeah. So, um, so the Amalekite, you know, he knew better. And now it's all backfired. Here's the moral of the story. And then we'll get to the. Uh, the rest of the chapter, and that's as far as we'll get tonight. Uh, the moral of the story is, first of all, the Amalekites are a type in the Old Testament. 
Now, uh, they are a type of sinful nature. They uh, symbolize, they're a sermon illustration God is using of your sinful nature that we all have an Ahmed that lives within us. We all have a sinful nature. Now, a type just means a prophetic picture like God is using, like he said, verse Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the Old Testament stories God is using to preach a sermon to us. They really happened, but he's using them to bring home truths as sermon illustrations to us. So for example, uh, there's a rock that keeps showing up wherever the wandering Israelites go. It following them. Wherever they look, there's that rock. Moses strikes the rock and out comes water. They're dying of thirst. They go to the rock that was struck. It bleeds out life-giving water. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, by the way, that is a type of Christ. God was just using that to talk to us upon whom the uh, fulfillment of the ages has come. So who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites as you Bible students know, stand for the unfixable, unredeemable, sinful nature that can you can only do one thing with it. You can't redeem it. You can't convert it. You can't uh, remodel it. You can't rehabilitate it. You can't reason with it. You can't persuade it. You can only do one thing with an Amalekite to annihilate it. In fact, that is Saul's demise. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, he was told, as they all of the warriors were told, the Malachites, not one is to be left alive. Not one. And in 1 Samuel 15, Saul left a few alive. And Samuel said, because of this one thing you've done, it's over. And it's such a lesson to us that if we let any part of our sinful nature survive, we'll, it'll be our ruination. It's so fitting, and this is why I think it really happened. It's so fitting for the death blow to be struck upon him by the very Amalekite that he let live. If he would have obeyed in 1 Samuel 15, none of that would have come around, but God is preaching a nice little poetic sermon here. If you don't kill the flesh, the flesh will kill you. And that's what happened. The last blow comes around like that, and bam. Now, we, we say the flesh, so if you're new to Christian, Christianese, the way we talk in church, the flesh really stands for and really means the sinful nature, right? But the word in the Greek is sarx, which, is, which means flesh or meat. It just means when you're in the flesh, that just means you are acting like a brute animal without the Holy Spirit. You're acting like a sinful, self-centered, uh, evil wrongdoing, hell-bound sinner. That enough adjectives for you? <laughs> I think you've got the point there. Uh, maybe I can come up with another dozen of them. Now, uh, you know, sin isn't um, bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God is trying to spare us do not let the Amalekites live. The Amalekites have names. Lust, pornography, greed, dishonesty, gossip, slander. These are things when you let them live, they come around and they'll destroy you. Drugs and alcohol, sexual immorality. Not just physically, but when we let even the civilized Ahmeds, uh, the, the few that we can kind of tolerate because we can't bear to just end them, they're the ones that you will find just in this verse, standing over you with a sword and at your command, just run me through. And with a smile on their face and a little glint in their eye, They'll obey your command. Boom. Ruined. 
everything because you wouldn't annihilate all of them. Every single one of them. Not, all you need is one. Just I, I killed 99 of them and I left just one little Ahmed. What can one little Ahmed do? He'll kill you. That's what he'll do. So Romans 8, 13. Oh, you cut that. Beautiful. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. One way to deal with your sinful nature and one way alone. The Holy Spirit to kill it, to render it dead. It survived your conversion. It is alive and well this moment. It's either dormant because the Holy Spirit has crushed it down or it's active and you choose every day if you want to be my follower Jesus said my disciples this is what you do deny self pick up cross follow me it's a daily discipline the second one Galatians 5 15 live by the spirit and you will not gratify the Achmeds of your nature uh, yeah you have to look really close in the Greek to see the Achmed part and number three here, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Notice here, Paul tells the Galatians, uh, not that they should. You call yourself a Christian, you should. No, a Christian is defined by the fact that the Holy Spirit is in them crucifying the sinful nature. That's what defines us. That's just how it goes. And I just want you to see, listen, all the willpower on the planet, all the therapy your good dollars could buy, all of the renouncing and the reasoning and the manipulations, none of it works. Meds, get on meds all you want. There's only one solution to stopping these kinds of things from happening in your life. To be crucified. By whom? The Holy Spirit. How do you do that? You're doing it right now because you've put yourself under the preaching of God's word. You've come out to be in God's presence in the congregation. This is how Ephesians chapter 4 says you deal with the Amalekite within. It says that God has gifted leaders to teach and to preach his word, to equip you to live the Christian life. This is how he does it. This is a huge percent of how you grow and you live in freedom from your own sinful nature. And those who don't, who have other priorities and they don't come under the word, you know, that inner sinful nature hates church because it's in church that it gets beaten down. And so you have to be very careful. I ran into somebody today that I haven't seen for 15 years. And I said in the course of the congregation, they were in a youth group that I was in charge of, a college group. And I said, are you walking with the Lord? He said, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, the clunk, you just hear clunk. And I'm like, oh, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church. Oh, oh, of course, why wouldn't you go to church if you're walking with the Lord? Because if you're walking with the Lord, as I said to him, as you're walking with the Lord, you want to be around God's people. You want to hear God's word preached. You want to worship. You want to serve. You want to contribute. If you were walking with the Lord, you would want to be in church. And so he said, well, you know, just, there's a lot of hypocrisy in church. And I said, now you sound just like an unbeliever. And then he changed the subject. I don't know why. I, I thought the conversation was right on track. But anyway. Now, with the Amalekite now out of sight, David composes a song and a tribute, uh, believe it or not, for Saul and Jonathan. We'll read the song, I'll make some comments, and we'll be done. 17 through the end of the chapter. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. That's the title of the song, The Lament of the Bow. And it's written in the book of Jashar. Now, this gets mentioned. Uh, it's like a military, a book of military, per, military poems. I'm going to get this out of my mouth. Uh, and, and it's not inspired. We don't have it. 
but the, we hear about it from time to time. And, and so, but this lament is inspired. All right, here, here comes David's uh, psalm, or song, a funeral song, if you will, uh, for Saul and Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, it's a Philistine city. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, uh, another Philistine city. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountain of Gilboa, it's where they were killed. May you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, for you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And so we'll take a look here for you note takers. Just David's eulogy for Saul and his son, Jonathan. Now, it's more technically called an elegy, E-L-E-G-Y, which is a eulogy set to music or prose or a poem like that. And so, you know, eulogy comes from the Greek words, good words, and uh, it's fitting. Now, there's an old hymn that I want to introduce this whole segment by uh, just the stanza, Grace, Grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Whether or not Saul's in heaven is God's call, and whether or not we're gracious people is our call. Human beings were made in God's image, especially those who serve him, even if they didn't do a good job or to profess faith, they are to be remembered with as much grace as humanly possible. When lives come to an end, we remember the good, if possible. That's godly. That is fitting. And that's what we're all hoping to hear for us, right? Well... This is what's happening here because you th it's like, are we talking about the same guy? And this is King Saul who hunted you down and made your life miserable, who was a really messed up uh, man. Yeah, we are talking about. Is he lying? He's not lying. You know what he's doing? He's taking the good things. He's remembering the good things and leaving the rest to the Lord. You know, my mom's memorial service was last month. And the four siblings, uh, their, her children spoke. And we all had a complicated relationship with my mother. But someone came up to my sister and said, by the way you four spoke, you might have thought your mama was an angel. That's we all at lunch, the four of us, spoke and said, how did that happen? How did... The grace of God come in and lift out all of the things that could be left unsaid. And we, without talking to one another, all remember the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the warm-hearted things. They were all true. And by the grace of God, he just, you know, it reminded me, and I have a picture of it, of a toy I used to play with when I was a little boy. It, it, there's a word for it. It's called a magic slate. Now, now you would press down with this kind of rubber pencil, and it would make a 
make marks on it. And all you had to do to erase it was, was pull it up, and it would make this wonderful noise. That was the best part of it. It would just go, you know, and it would just lift up, you know, and thank you for that picture. You know, you know what? God's grace just, just, just lifts off all the junk. And what you're left with is all the beauty, all the goodness. I don't care who has passed, but when, when, when somebody stands up to speak and you're a Christian, every measured word out of your mouth ought to be gracious and loving and wonderful and uplifting as far as you can be. And if you can't, then you know what your mama said. If you can't say anything good, your mama said then don't. Yeah, you got the same mama. We're brothers and sisters. We got the same mama. No. It's a song of grace. He says, your glory, Israel, are these two men, Saul and Jonathan, and they're your glory. And just it's just a wonderful thing to look back by guide, guided by love and mercy. You know, he's remembering the glory days. You remember back uh, when the lost donkeys happened in chapter 10. Saul was a good boy. He went out for his dad, and he was thorough and hardworking, and he cared about his dad. And he said, hey, we need to get back because my dad's going to start to worry about us and not, not, not about the donkeys. You know, and then in chapter 9, uh, when Samuel comes and says, hey, man, the Lord wants you to be king. He goes, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm the least person in my family. He, he started out. He had humility. And then I love this. You know, in chapter 11, he fought courageously and saved Israel again and again. You can't take that away from him. He saved Israel many times. And afterwards, some wanted to put Saul's detractors to death. Do you remember that? Because they didn't want him to be king. And then he was, wow, everybody loved him because he, he beat the Philistines back. And then they said, let's kill those guys who didn't want to make you king. And what did Saul say? He said, no, nobody dies today. The Lord was good to us. He had redeeming qualities, and David's going to sing about him. Why? Because David has a loving heart. David knows what grace is. He's like the Lord in that way. Maybe marriages and relationships could be improved if only we could think now what we'll be saying at their funeral. The guy you're married to, you know, the words you're going to say or will be said about him, they're going to be wonderful, aren't they? Because the magic slate's going to happen. And you're going to be left with a beautiful man and a beautiful memory. Do you remember that? Now. And it works both ways, doesn't it? I think kind of that's what agape means. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's a song of grace, too. It's a song of praise. You know, it says in verse 23, they, these guys were the strongest, bravest guys on the planet, Va valiant warriors, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, war heroes. Uh, Saul had slain his thousands. You remember Jonathan's faith, you know, encouraging in 1 Samuel 14. He said, David, let's, me and you, we've got the Lord. We could single-handedly whoop these Philistines. That was the courage and faith of Jonathan. And they did, too. You know, those, those guys, they were warriors. Jonathan and Saul, they were like Matt Damon, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Lee, Steven Seagal, and Charles Bronson, and Arnold Schwarzenegger all rolled up into one guy. <laughs> Who did I leave out? Come on. See, I... Excuse me, Chuck Norris. Wow, that's right, because he's a brother, right? I should have thought of that. It's also a song, in, just bringing my remarks to a close here, it's a song of gratitude, too. It's a shout-out for the way Saul provided. Uh, praise for provision. 
with King Saul, you know, Israel was provided for. He said you, he clothed Israel with beautiful garments and costly gemstones. He's saying he kept you guys safe. The economy was running. You guys could live your life in safety and, and you had food on the table and all of that. And then there was a shout out to Jonathan's love. Just so beautiful, a special ode to Jonathan for the way that Jonathan loved David. You know, back in, I think it was chapter 18, it said, Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. David was on the receiving end of this wonderful love. And here's a paraphrase of what he's saying. He's saying, Jonathan, having someone love me like you did was higher than any human love. Even the most exalted and thrilling love between a husband and wife It was God's kind of love. David got a little taste of what it's like to be on the receiving end of Old Testament agape. That's what happened. And agape doesn't even happen in some marriages. It's a hard thing to come by. But God gifted David with somebody, one person, who would show David the kind of love that only resides in the heart of God. That's why David could say, I I can't compare it even to being married love. It's higher than that. Yeah, it is higher than that. A love that just thinks the world of you no matter what. It just, I mean, seriously, Sunday we talked about it. You know, it, it believes all things. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. It never fails. It's a rare thing in this life to be loved that way. I was talking to Pastor Jim. He poked his head in my office right before we came out here. And I told him that part. And he said, do you have somebody like that? And I said, no. Do you? And he said, that's a tall order, isn't it? And we left it at that. And then I'm working And I hear in my heart, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You do have somebody like that. It's me. I love you like that. I look at you and I get chills. Well, I don't know if he gets chills. (laughs) He looks at me and, and he just thinks the world. He, he looks at you and says, I let somebody crucify me for you. I let them pluck out my beard, spit in my face, flog me till I'm half dead. And then I'd carry my own cross beam. And I'd lay down, even though I could just blink my eye and make the whole world just stop. I would gladly lay down my life for somebody like you. You, you. You do that to me, to my heart. And I look at you. I'm just for you all the time. That kind of crazy love that we don't even know. And David just says this is a love worth singing about it. On the night Jesus was betrayed, John 13, he showed them the full extent of his agape. And he got down and and did the the deed nobody else wanted to do is wash everybody's feet. And then he gets up and he goes to the cross for all of their sins. And then in that meeting, he says, a new commandment, new command I give to you all. I want you to agape. As I have agape you, you must, it's a command, agape one another. And it's like, Lord, how? How I, I can not love like that. Do you know what it was like trying to preach that sermon on Sunday and know in my own heart how hard it is to even be consistently nice to people? (laughs) Let alone agape, going through the fire with a smile that comes from the sweetness of my heart because of the love that I have for you. Where is that? It's not in me. I mean, it's there a little bit here and there. 
I mean, yeah, you get little hints of it, but if we're on, I just come away going, have I ever really loved somebody like that? Even my own wife and my children. When I read 1 Corinthians 13 and compare it to my life, the fear of God comes upon me. And I have to go to my knees and say, Jesus, help me. This is a command. You're in here. I know you're in here somewhere. Please help me. And, and he does help us. And we have glimmer of hope. And we are covered by his grace, thankfully. And he is love. And he's in us. And he's forgiven us. It doesn't mean we, we stop trying. Don't give up. Do everything you can to let that love come out and uh, bless others like that. So in closing, I know I've already said in closing probably three times, <laughs> but in closing, closing, this is like the last closing. It was a song really that he was teaching others. Just look at this. He commanded them in verse 18 to learn the song. So he goes up to the guys and he says, I order you, you must memorize and learn this song and teach it to your kids too. Why? Because by the way we live our gracious lives and the, the way we show kindness and gratitude and respect, those are qualities that need to be instilled and we need to teach one another, mostly by how we live our lives how to be gracious and forgiving and loving and kind, to respect God-given authority, to come under. These are things he says, I command you, you must sing this song, and you will sing it. And then what did it do? It disarmed everybody, and it showed every, all of Israel, look, I'm not holding any grudges against my father-in-law. There's not going to be a big war now that Jonathan and Saul are dead, and I'm going to come in and wipe out all his former supporters. I loved him, and this is my song to him. And so it's a song of wisdom to disarm and to bring peace. Well, next chapter, uh, David will be crowned king, but before you get too excited, it's only over one tribe, his own, Judah. For seven years, the 11 other tribes are not on board. <laughs> and so... The Lord is digging the foundation in this guy so he will have a loving shepherd's heart with pure wisdom to be Israel's best king ever. But it's going to take some prep time like he does with all of us. Uh, it's worth whatever he's putting you through to prepare you for what he has coming. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, the truths that the Holy Spirit has kind of brought to light. We pray that we could uh, put them into practice, help us to understand what you're saying and to just yield to you and by faith walk with you one day at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.